a record of the delightful piece they're going to play this evening. Ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen. Can you repeat that one more time? Chayada. Chayada. Okay. Yeah. Would you care going into your name? That's I always like when I feel people when they have an interesting name, they have a story behind it. What's yours for that? Yeah. Oh, sure. So Chayada. Well, this there's there's a couple layers to it. Chayada is the old Anglo-Saxon form of Chad, and there was a there's a Saint Chad venerated in the Anglican and Catholic churches who converted most of the Germanic pagans in Mercia, which is in the middle of England, coincidentally known as the Midlands. Uh, he's very, venerated very highly there. Most churches you go into, can you can find uh, icons of him or stained glass. And I believe the Anglican Cathedral of Lichfield uh, was founded by him. Obviously, he used to be Catholic before that whole thing. Um, so I thought it's a perfect way because I'm from the area of Mercia to one LARP medievally, uh, call myself Chad without everyone realizing it. Um, I think that's just the gist of it. And of course, he's a, he's a saint. So I thought that that's too good of an opportunity to pass up. Nobody's capitalized on calling themselves Chad in the Anglo Saxon language. So I thought I had to do it. Is it really a LARP if you could trace your roots there, though? You said you are from Mercia, correct? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, but the Kingdom of Mercy hasn't existed for a long time. Um, I'm trying to remember, all the kingdoms of England were united by Athelstan, which is another strong Anglo-Saxon name, uh, before the Normans, but over a thousand years ago now. Yeah, um, how would you, how much of, I guess, England history or... That, as we say in America, across the pond history, do you know of, would you say, decent amount? Um, definitely in the uh, middle of, like, going from where I was a few years ago, of, oh, I know everything there is to know, I know about the effect that the world wars had on this country, uh, to now knowing that uh, there's so much that I don't know. I really do love um, trying to learn about Anglo-Saxon history, but given it's called erroneously the Dark Ages, there isn't actually that much we have in terms of primary sources so people try and put things together. I'm really, really enjoying learning about High Middle Ages um, from the times of around the Hundred Years' War up to the Tudors. Um, so you're talking about 12th to 15th century, 15th, 16th. That's where I'm actually thinking, okay, I actually have a grasp on the history of this country, which is just so dense. Obviously, this is before America even existed. Um, and it's just hundreds of years of trying to know all of the kings, all of the uh, members of the court, all of the rebellions, all of the foreign wars. It's, it's pretty tough to keep up with, but it, it was all Catholic at that point. And I think that is what makes it's a yearning for that, which drives a lot of my research into that period. Yeah, from the most of my knowledge, I know it goes from Roman Britannia, which was Julius Caesar invading the island in 55 oh. BC around. And then you have the end of the Roman rule, of course, which is like 5th century AD. 
And that's when the island was kind of like, you know, marks the beginning period of the Anglo-Saxon, if you will, like the Celtic immigrants and the fragments of Britannia into like various different Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. And then, yeah, yeah, you go into like the middle medieval period where you have like Wessex, Mercia, and apologize for my pronunciation. Is it Northumbria, I believe? Uh, I would say Northumbria, but I don't know if maybe uh, more emphasis on the U is more historically accurate. I'm not sure. Yeah, correct, correct. But right now, I'm currently at the point of like Norman conquest, like Uh 1066. So that's around the era of like King Canuck and stuff like that. Uh But it's definitely been fascinating reading into um, because there's him, then there's William the Conqueror, who's basically just rode through there and is like, all right, we're establishing this rule in England. And a lot of people like cite that as being like the big push, I guess, for like civilization, if you will. Or the rebirth of civilization in, um, like, what is today England, if you will? In in many ways, yes. Uh, But I would say not entirely. The the Normans were most famous for their architecture in a in a lasting sense. But uh, well, I shouldn't say that. Most famous for their architecture and their political system, which was much more rigid serfdom. Um, Whereas the Anglo Saxons were very decentralized in their law. Um, and well, the Normans were just very coming from France, which at this time was very wealthy, um, had a fantastic knowledge of architecture and public works. And there are lots of buildings like, uh, Westminster Abbey, which is where all of the Royal family get, um, married in and have their funerals in and everything that was originally Norman. Uh, there's, I've wrote about on my Substack a town called Arundel has a fantastic Norman history. It was built by, I think it was William the Conqueror, or maybe one of his sons, and was also the staging point for the rebellion that I don't know much about, but it involved a female descendant of William who had a genuine claim to the throne, but then her brother or cousin or someone or a man um, fought against it. I think he won in the end, but her base of operations was Arundel in the south, and it's a yeah, amazing place with some amazing history. Uh, the Normans really did sh- change the landscape of England in terms of where power was. Um, it was very much more of like a patronage system where, where your power depends on how much the king likes you and how much it is, is very much became a scratch my back, I'll scratch yours kind of thing, um, which would later evolve into barons competing with the king which was actually more akin to the way it tended to work in the anglo-saxon period so the normans were much more centralized and almost tyrannical um which sort of faded over time and wasn't quite the case just before they arrived okay and later the formation of the uk that's that's way down the road correct you'd say because yeah, I, think, I think you could say that happened at the Battle of Culloden, which was the end of the Jacobite Rebellion. Uh, that was around about the time of the American Revolutionary War, if I'm not wrong. Um, and yeah, that was when England became the head of power in the whole United Kingdom, which united Wales and Scotland, I think. Yeah, and do you know anything about, I believe it's in 1800s, early 1800s, the Kingdom of Ireland? They like joined to create United Kingdom, if you will, of, like Great Britain and Ireland, because I know at that point there was like England, Scotland, Wales. That was like still like divided, or I wouldn't say mm-hmm. divided, more gradually coalesced, if you will. 
like they're different main nations, but there was that call to be like, yeah, we are the UK, if you will. I I don't I honestly I don't know much at all about the history of Ireland. I should do. Um, I think it, it seems very very complicated to try and get into if you're not in the cultural cultural context of it. I think I'd, I'd imagine for the same reason trying to learn about uh, English history without being able to go to these places and see the effects that they had and the battles fought at these places and treaties signed and everything. If if even though Irish and English culture is very similar, no matter how much we try and I don't know, fight each other over it and say that it's not. Um, there's there's enough of a cultural disconnect for me where I, I I really just don't know. I have no idea what's gone on throughout most of the history of Ireland. Yeah, fair enough. Sorry about that. I'm getting most of my um, history from American perspective, so I'm getting bits and pieces. But I do like reading into it, so I'm trying to like say, okay, what about this and this part? <laughs> but definitely, that's something I've always loved since I was a little kid is learning about history and. Thankfully, because of social media, I was able to meet a lot of great people from Europe. In fact, one of my best friends, mm. he's um, he has a PhD in history and he's from Scotland, but he preferably does like European history. So mm. he could tell you like any random niche fact at a drop of the hat about a kingdom or something like that. But very intelligent man. Yeah, he's a really great guy. But it's funny because I asked him what's in Scotland. He said nothing but sheep and castles. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, really? And then he was like, yeah, like sheep outnumber the people that live here. I'm like, well, I I thought he was joking. Then I looked it up and that was true. I'm like, wait, they have more sheep than people. Wow. I didn't but, know that. I expect, I expect that for Wales. I didn't know it was the case for Scotland. Yeah, I may have them. What's it? Yeah, Scotland's the castle ones, correct? I'm hoping I don't got them flipped. Um, or... well, yeah, there are a lot of castles in Scotland. A lot of them still in use as well. Oh, nice. Um, if you're okay me asking, well, first of all, for, I guess, I never really said this to you publicly yet, but I just want to let you know, I have to tip my hat off for you for getting me involved and, like, you know, being interested in the politics. And it's definitely, <laughs> oh yeah, it was definitely your account, I'd say, got me into it for, like, the starting point, if you will, and, like, get the oh. ball moving. But hats off to you, man, like, thank you for that, like, and there's a lot of other people with similar stories to know, and... I remember telling a couple of my group chats, I'm like, hey, I'm going to have, you know, you on. And then they're all static. They're like, no way, you're going to have them on. I'm like, yeah. And they're all like, tell them I said hi. And I'm like, all right. That. So. <laughs> well, OK. Well, yeah, I think that's that's a good segue to actually introduce myself, because most people right. have no idea who Chayada is. But some of your audience might know Anglo-Libertarian. In fact, they probably if they did know, we would have recognized my voice by now. Um, did you. Had you heard of me back in my Instagram days before YouTube? I've no, my first videos was definitely your breakdown videos on the big three for like right wing libertarianism. That's right. when I first learned about it because before my view of libertarianism was very, I hate to say as I was young and into politics, was like something to be paired. So, like how Steven Crowder would call himself, oh, I'm a conservative libertarian or. Mm -hmm. You know, people like mix it, and I didn't really feel like libertarian. It's kind of like a at game, if you will, where it's like I'm just taking pick bits and pieces of this. But you were definitely the guy to like introduce me to a lot of that stuff and open a framework for like, hey, here are these people who are like philosophers, economists, and has like greater thoughts on the concept. Brilliant. Um, yeah. Well, yeah. I'm I'm very glad to know that. And uh, some people might, uh, some people can get quite angry at me who I used to. 
talk to um, a lot in those circles, but I, I certainly am a libertarian. That never stopped. Um, I, I think a lot of these people think... I mean, I agree very much with Hans Hermann Hopper on nearly everything, and I think a lot of people think that he just wrote Democracy, the God that failed, and then that was it. Uh, the guy is still active up to, uh, not so much today, but a few years ago, writing things about how libertarians should ally themselves with the alt-right, as it used to be called, um, rather than just digging yourself into a hole and creating a bubble that purity spirals and doesn't actually deal with the world as it is, um, and gets a lot very lost in terms of strategy because they don't actually know what politics is and how they should be navigating it. Um, but I, I, I don't know how much you might want to get into that over the course of this discussion, but well, I'd I love to get into that because I'm having um, similar issues as well, but really? sorry, what were you saying? No, I was just, I was just going to say, I, I am a libertarian. I'm, I'm not an anarchist and I wrote an article as to why that is not to say that I don't agree with the non-aggression principle or that I don't agree that, um, if collective rule is to occur, it should be with the consent of the governed. Um, but to call it anarchist is to say that there is no hierarchy. Uh, but I certainly do believe, as a right-winger, as well as a libertarian, that hierarchy is fundamental to human societies. You cannot get rid of it. And someone will always be calling the shots while everyone else follows. That is just basic human anthropology. Um, and a lot of people say that, okay, if you do disagree with the idea of a state by force and you're an anarchist and i'd say i definitely i don't agree with that but if they think i'm an anarchist and they're an anarchist and they understand that we are actually allies then so be it by the by yeah i'm having a similar situation too where i kind of my political journey has been a bit of like a wash where it's everywhere where first i went before i found you online was i was still young and i was very much into like you know Ben Shapiro, facts, logic, all that stuff like that. And then when that stuff happened in real life where I was like confronted with these people, I realized they didn't care about that. And it's kind of like the meme you're seeing online now where it shows the conservative who's like beaten to a bloody pulp and he's like mumbling. Imagine if the situations were reversed. Yeah, we're all Americans. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's, That's something that I think is just noticing that can push someone more right wing, whether or not they consider themselves conservatives or not in the first place. Uh, I've shielded it quite a lot, but an amazing book to read to understand power and the way it works is the populist delusion by Nima Parvini. It's very short. I think it's about 150 to 200 pages. Um, and it will just help you to understand the people on the left who are going about this societal crusade do not care about being hypocrites. They do not care um about anything except for the fact that you are you're their enemy in the way of progress as they see it and they are just going to walk all over you and if you try and give them the benefit of the doubt and try and make the this very unbalanced unfair playing field fair and balanced you're just going to die agreed and i've actually read what's it thomas hobbs leviathan and that was a book that kind of convinced me, you know, because I went from, you know, paleo-libertarian to, like, anarchist, and then I realized, like, anarchism, like you said, hierarchy is just natural, it exists. Like, you can't deny this, even seeing in, like, nature, if you will. But 
don't know. It's recently I'm having a bit of an issue. I think I'm falling in the same place you are, where I'm getting a lot more into my faith, and mm. I'm glad to be embraced by the church. And I traditionally have combined. I've always seen libertarianism as this. Libertarianism is a legal framework. They never claim to be a moral framework. So libertarianism, to me, answers the question: Can you do this? While ethics answers the question: Should you do this? Basically. Mm-hmm. And I've always had the church for me answer to should you question. So, like libertarianism, can you own as much property as you're capable of or you want to? Sure, why not? While, like, you know, Catholicism is like, sure, you can, but be wary of greed and fall into that trap, basically, where you're just basically hoarding all the things and not giving back. So, I've always balanced that, but recently people have been accusing me of being, you know, quote-unquote, not a real libertarian. Because, who's that guy running in Argentina right now? Uh, Javier Mille, I think his last name is pronounced. Yes, correct. He posted something uh, saying, yeah. you know, you know, I'm going to say <laughs> he's like the Catholic Church is corrupt. You know, the Pope's a communist and all this stuff slandering the church. And I simply said, like, hey, I'm not going to really go against this guy, but I'm withdrawing my support for him. If he wins, he wins. If he doesn't, he doesn't. And that lit a fire under like, you know, right wing libertarian communities where they're always accusing me. And they'd be like, are you saying you're putting the church above politics? And I'm like, yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. <laughs> and for a lot of them, it's like, it's so foreign to a concept because people you meet, a lot of these guys are like atheist or agnostic, which has always confused me because I'm like, where do you lay your justification of morality upon then if it's simply just on, you know, the rights of this or that? But it was similar but, um, to that. Where, yeah. Well, sorry, what are you saying? Up. I was just going to say, to give Javier the benefit of the doubt, I don't think he said anything about the church. I think he just said the Pope is a communist and, like, the most evil person on the planet, which, not you can't really defend that, but I, I, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm, not, I'm not sure, because Chile is, like, 95% Catholic or something fantastic like that, I'm, I'm going to assume he either is at least considers himself loosely Catholic or was raised um, to, a, a, to a Catholic to at least an extent. Um, I don't know. I, th- I think that will just make him maybe have respect for the church, but have no respect for the Pope because Javier is mental. And we often quite need mental people at the minute uh, to try and counter the crazy shit that is going on in the world. And I think in his mentalness, he just sees, a, a, honestly, a quite a left-wing Pope uh, and sort of just goes all out on him. Which I think it's a it's a big shame that uh, Francis getting as involved in politics as he does can create that. I mean, this but this isn't a new thing. John Paul II was very much into politics and being against communism. I'm not sure that set a great precedent because then when you get quite a left wing president, uh, sorry, president, dear, that that's that's her, that's heretical. Pope, um, you, you, yeah, I think it, it's just it sort of sets it up to pendulum back and forth between any pope's particular political leanings can make people view the church differently which it should absolutely not the church should not come across as a worldly institution and i so i i I don't entirely lay uh blame at javier's feet i don't think he's some like crazy satanist i think he has unfortunately viewed the state of the church through a political lens but they've made it very easy for him to do that um, oh, I'm trying to think what else I was going to follow up with that. 
What what were we talking about? We talked about Javier and then other things. We're talking about Javier and now, like we said earlier, the I guess accusations of people like me and you being not real libertarians because yeah. we put faith above all else. Yeah, I've actually thought so. Reading a lot about Tudor history lately, uh, a massive accusation that was made against Catholics by the new Protestant English was, uh, "You put Rome above England." And I think if someone said that to me as I was walking onto the flaming pyre, I would just say, "Yes, <laughs> of course, of course, religion comes above politics." Uh, but to imagine that the Catholic religion is incompatible with libertarianism is to say, Tom Woods and Lou Rockwell are fake libertarians, um, as well as there are there are rumours at least that Murray Rothbard was going to convert before not not, not long before he died, but sadly didn't. Um, and I think that's probably true because the man does ha- he did have a great respect for um, the scholastic tradition. You can see that in lots of his writings about economic history. And he tried to frame his natural law in a Thomistic way. I don't think he did a very good job because I think he built it on too many unsubstantiated assumptions. Um, but essentially, yes, I think you got it absolutely spot on. I think I phrased it exactly the same way. Libertarianism is a legal theory. It does not make any sort of claim on morals. And so what you can do and what you should do are very different things. Um, and I think... You're, you're right. So many people who won't acknowledge that libertarianism is only a legal system think that they don't have any sort of moral assumptions, but ask them if a person should engage in same-sex intercourse. And they'll say, absolutely, of course. There's nothing libertarian that says you can't and completely miss the question, I think. Um, anyone who does... <laughs> Well, I mean, yeah, of course. Like, I, I, I go further than that to say that people like that are completely politically inept and toothless. They actually don't threaten the status quo at all. Is because you can walk into a HR department, which is the main method of enforcement of the regime's ideology in an economy like ours, and you can go in there and say, I think... Everyone should be allowed to own a gun. I think the government shouldn't exist. I think we shouldn't have to pay taxes. And I say, okay, can you go back to your desk, please, and just do some fucking work? Go in there and say, I don't think we should be hiring homosexual employees. Ooh, which one do you think is going to get more of a reaction? You could actually go, uh, maybe not in America, but you will go to court for that. Um, it'll probably, hopefully, uh, be you'll get away with it in terms of uh, you won't go to prison because of a very a very loose religious freedom protection we have but you will lose your job and you will, your name will be everywhere and you will be turned into a pariah you will not do that if you say anything in regards to libertarian legal theory so the actual status quo they've made the people who enforce it have made the battle lines very clear and if you aren't going anywhere near those lines you're not fighting you're just pretending to stand on some sort of um podium cheering yourself along while everyone else is is just playing a completely different game. Agreed. And like what you were saying earlier about how like of these movements that they don't care about hypocrisy, they don't care about, you know, contradictions. They're like eating through. Um, are you familiar with Warhammer 40k by any chance? Yeah, I've, 
I've never played it. Uh, I've played lots of um, the RTS games. Dawn of War is one of my favorite games of all time. I don't know that much about the lore, but I'm at least vaguely familiar. Are you familiar with the Tyranids? Yes. I was like, just an unending wave and horde, just not caring, just like destroying, going through. It's similar like that, where it's like a piranha pit, if you will, where at a moment you're swimming amongst the piranhas and you have like a light cut on you. They smell blood and go for it. And that's why I feel like people like, you know, yourself and I and others, especially if you're not careful with who you're around, if you get cut and bleed, you're going to get eaten, basically. And that's what I'm worried about a lot today, especially because, you know, I'm starting to see an uprising like young Catholics, especially like the Thomist, um, putting their voices heard. Mm. But at the same time, it's always the same where, like you said, it's like status, like trying to shove that down. And although I agree in America is a lot more easier compared to Europe. Uh, I think both sides could be pretty difficult in the sense of, you know, like you said, isolation, outcasting, basically this person's like the sheep, you know, the black sheep. But it did yeah, birth uh, a number of anons, though. I do like that, I'd say. Yeah, yeah. We Anonymous troll demons, according to Jordan Peterson. But what um, oh, sh- I completely forgot where I was going to go. I had to get the Jordan Peterson joke in there. That threw me off. I love the Jordan um, Peterson joke. That was it. No, I got, I got it. Um, yeah, I, I do like um, questioning whether Jordan Peterson was ever actually any good, but that's by the by. The oh, I've done it again. I've forgotten. Oh my god, I'm getting so old. What is wrong with me? Um, no, you're not old just yet. <laughs> I, I, I like annoying everyone at my job by saying, oh, "I'm really getting on now. I'm 27 years old, and they just want to punch me." <laughs> um, yeah. I'm prior to so my body's just broken and yeah, I do my knees. Job. Yeah, I joke around. I'm like, I may be, you know, 22, but my body feels 42. Okay, give me yeah, a minute. Yeah. <laughs> I bet you go, <laughs> whenever you get out of a chair. Yeah, the oh, universal. Yeah. Let's go. What are you saying though? Sorry. Um oh, I I'm, I'm terrible. I keep forgetting. I think uh, yes, that was it. I was gonna say another I don't like to just like make any conversation about politics ragging on libertarians because, like I said, I am a libertarian. But where a vast majority of libertarians have a total misunderstanding of politics is the difference between hard and soft power. And I think they can only ever view tyranny through a lens of Stalin. And un- unless the KGB is going around shooting people and then throwing their wives and children in a gulag then the government's not actually doing anything to inf- to impose their will on me, which is utter, utter nonsense. I think there are greater protections of hard power in the US where you won't go to prison for speaking out against the status quo anywhere near as easily as you will in the UK, but it is just as easy for you to be completely disenfranchised and have your life ruined. And that... If we've known about this forever everyone's called it cancel culture for the longest time but i think libertarians don't understand cancel culture for a couple of reasons one cancel culture is a good thing it's what you're getting cancelled for that's currently terrible uh, and two that is an exercise of power with power be- the definition of power being the ability to influence people everyone is following the incentives set by the state and the, their court jesters in the private sector to to toe the line and just because a literal gun is not against your head does not mean that they will impose sanctions upon you which will destroy you economically physically just the same way as if they were to 
go into your house, take all of your shit, uh, and beat the crap out of you. Uh, th- there, there absolutely is a will that they want enforced, and it is not like the Second Amendment is not the 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 line in the sand. They've completely just skirted around that, and the guns that everyone has have done nothing to protect it. It requires a much, much greater. Like, I don't think they understand the fight they're up against. It is against the established institutions of the most powerful country the world has ever seen. They need to be completely destroyed, and you aren't going to do that by purity spiraling everyone into only one particular mindset and one course of action that doesn't actually fight on the front lines of the established war. Um, and it, it, I think that's just why it, it leaves them just sort of being politically embarrassed all the time. The only person who is doing it right is Javier Mille, who his, his, his hatred for leftism takes him to the point of basically foaming at the mouth in any interview he does. And if he gets into power... I really hope his general insanity, which in this case is a good thing, the guy is insane, but I hope that that means he'll actually do what needs to be done. Um, if, if you aren't using at least the Javier Mille strategy of going to the seat of power and overthrowing it, or at least I would say you could subvert these institutions, but left, the leftists are so good at subversion and countering it that it's kind of pointless. Just be the strong man and use the strength for good. To imagine that power itself is bad is a ridiculous liberal assumption, which is one, not only true, but two, can never possibly be changed. Power is always going to exist. And quite simply, if good people aren't trying to occupy that place of power, bad people will. So that, that's, that's my rant about power for the moment. <laughs> No, and I agree with that because especially like we we're talking at the beginning of this podcast about, you know, the history of um, England up to the point we are today. And you see throughout it, too, there's feudal systems and power and people ruling and trading and doing a lot of, I'd argue, beneficiary things for that landmass, like helping others, building kingdoms, building established, you know, road societies. And you have this like weird, like you said, post-enlightenment, if you will, birth of like, oh, liberalism, all power, bad, separation, church, state. And it's kind of like almost as people's default now, if that makes any sense. Like, I've had two guests on my podcast before, and both of them were pretty big on like the global liberalism scale stuff. And then he went on the rant saying like, oh, we just need to spread more democracy, more democracy and liberalism for the whole world, and everything would just get better. And then I gave him a little bit of pushback, like, well, what about people who've been living a certain ways for thousands, if hundreds, if not thousands of years, and you're introducing this brand new system to them? And then he bewilderedly just was like, oh, I don't think that's ever happened. I'm like, have you looked at the Middle East recently? <laughs> <laughs> but No, that's good. I, um, I, I have a passionate hatred for democracy, but I also do have to acknowledge that the, the, the underlying virtue of a society is way more important than the political form that it takes it's much more about uh I'm trying to think in terms of Aristotelian causation not the form but uh almost, almost the teleology but sort of like what is your political system working towards 
is way more important than what is your political system, even though I think democracy by itself is the most rapidly degenerating of all systems and spirals the most into, out of control. Um, and uh, to, to imagine as well that democracy decentralizes power is just utterly insane when the US government is the most centralized political institution that has ever existed. Medieval kingdoms were really very decentralized. The king did not have absolute power. He only had control over a small part of the landmass of the nation, which was the royal estate. And he relied on the cooperation of the barons, who were trying to mutually cooperate with the king, both of them for their own self-interests. And so you did have a, a hierarchy of devolved powers where the king needs the nobles, the nobles need the peasants, and that goes all the way up as well. Peasants need the nobles, the nobles need the king, and everyone actually seeks to benefit each other. And when, of course, you have a very, very devout Catholic society underneath that, the result's going to be fantastic. And then when you simply have one handful of people in charge who might only have four or five years to pursue their own interests, uh, and as I mean, and completely get rid of any sort of moral foundation of society, you end up with exactly what we have now. And I, I always want to ask a lot of libertarians with these enlightenment and not even classically liberal, just liberal with a capital L assumptions. If enlightenment liberalism is so good, and we followed it completely by the book for two hundred years, and it's gotten us here. <laughs> Like how 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 do you explain that? How do you explain that the foundations are good and the result is the worst political system humanity has ever seen by their own measurements? It's always a good question. No, I hundred percent agree with you. And usually they try to spiral into like, well, that wasn't real X, but that just goes down the no true Scotsman fallacy of saying like, hey, if you're just trying to like promote this ideal of being like, oh yeah, that wasn't real X ideology then you're just running down a slippery slope to, okay, what is then? And funny enough, I got in a debate with a communist before where anytime I brought up an example, they keep bumping in and saying like, oh, that wasn't real communism, it wasn't real communism. Mm -hmm. And of course, I was like, okay, I want to hear what's your definition of communism. And it's, of course, you know, moneyless, classless, stateless society that's like so pure, sublime, utopian. That's mm -hmm. impossible to work in reality. But I'm like, okay, I'll play along with this. And then I let them speak, and they brought up an example of a capitalist country, and I cut them off and said that wasn't real capitalism. <laughs> and they're, they look so shocked. They're like, what? I'm like, yeah, you heard me. It wasn't real capitalism. And then I began to read the most right libertarian <laughs> definition of like anarcho-capitalism imaginable just to mess with them be like, yeah, you see, so. And then they're like, no, it's not fair. You can't do that because then nothing's capitalism. And then just the irony of me sitting there watching them mouth that to me while not realizing they did the same thing. And I basically, I simply said to them, okay, we have two alternatives now. One, we both admit our systems are what they are, and we go forward from here. Or two, we're stuck in this infinite loop of me and you both going back saying that's not real X. So which one would you yeah. prefer to do? <laughs> but... Yeah, I, um... I think it's, it's slightly different in that you, they can say communism has never been tried, whereas I think with libertarians at least they they can point to examples where it was at least close to being tried and obviously the very beginning of america is is a good example of that 
I do think a better example is um, Victorian, early Victorian England, um, that they generally had much more classically liberal principles uh, than the early Americans did. But the thing with a classical liberal or a libertarian who looks back to that Enlightenment time and the ideas which came from there with those rose-tinted glasses and said, ah, oh, that's the way everything should have been, they, uh, it's, it's very different looking at what people say their objectives are and what their assumptions are underneath that which motivate them. And the, uh, you'll find for the American founders and a lot of the founders of just liberal ideology, the motivation, way more than freedom, is equality. And when that is the case, how could you ever expect these ideas which uh, they, they want freedom and they want equality, and whether that's equality before the law, which actually is a good thing, if you just simply have equality as the assumption that you're building a political system under, it's going to go left. Yes, I, I think a, uh, not almost value-free, but we could say at least a very fair definition of left and right is that on the left they pursue equality, on the right they pursue order. And you can at least know if you're a libertarian, I think, that you're not a leftist. So what do you think about order? Because a lot of them wouldn't think about it in terms of... They wouldn't think about it in terms of that. They think, oh, well, right-wing is just like nationalism or something. Anyone who, in their right mind, who is a libertarian, would say, out of choosing between equality and order, they should be pursuing order. And that makes them right-wing. And then that should, that should mean they should question the assumptions of the Enlightenment which created leftism as we know it. Socialism did not exist in any sort of respect. There was no progenitor of socialism and communism before liberalism, and it, truly it came out of liberalism. Um, and I think if, if you're going to be a libertarian, you have to ask yourselves those questions, and you have to say, what side of the fence do I sit on, left or right? And that will really, really change your perspective of the assumptions of your ideology, which will then tell you where it will go if it is successful. Agreed. What would you tell, I guess, libertarians today who are a bit confused or don't know if they're post-enlightenment or pre-enlightenment? Like, what would your general advice be for that? Would it be what you said earlier, the order compared to equality? Or um, Yes, I, I, I would say read a lot of Hans Hermann Hoppe's more recent stuff, because like I said, he didn't write one book and then stop. Everything he's written since then is a continuation from that, because you can t clearly tell reading that book, out of a quality of order, this man's going to choose order. And so why would you not want to know his expansion on those ideas and where he's gone since then in his research down that path, which he like, did such an amazing job of outlining why that's the path you should go down in that book. Why would you not be curious to want to know more? But because we have to, I think the best thing that can happen to a libertarian, I know this from my experience, and it sounds like yours as well, is to not just think of everything in terms of politics, or at least especially legal theory, which is all libertarianism is that then influences your politics. Philosophy as a whole should absolutely be grappled by anyone who's intellectually curious enough to even call themselves a libertarian i don't i think the only people that can do that are people who are curious about the way the world works and more so the way the world should work rather than it currently does 
and I think if it, that that shows enough of a spark of curiosity to want to go out and to learn more about reality, more beyond just how do humans organize themselves, which is what politics and economics is, which isn't really that interesting after a certain point. You sh- really should pick up history and philosophy if you're intellectually curious and ask yourself, why did people believe the things that they did for thousands of years and then we stopped believing five minutes ago? Were they wrong for all of that time? Were they just backward savages that were barely human? Or have we got it wrong? And that was what sent me down the path of just saying, no, you know what? We, are, we live in the most insane time in human history where we are the most backwards from the assumptions which have carried humanity to where we are today. We've literally done a 180 turn from them and are trying to move away from beauty, goodness, and truth. And you can see that all around us where morals, if you even mention the word morals, you are someone to be cast out because you're infringing on the freedom of others, which is because liberalism got us here. Or if you say to someone, no, I don't think you should be going out and catching venereal diseases, you are infringing on their freedom to do so just by saying it. Um, And especially, of course, religion is the most important thing. Uh, And ask yourself why the greatest minds that humanity has ever seen either were religious and especially Catholic, or at least inspired them, like Aristotle and Plato. They are fundamental to a view of reality and existence which is sane, which actually makes sense of the universe around us and what we are supposed to do in it and why we are even in it. The, like These are things that the science cannot answer. Um, they base, like, yeah, I, I don't know. I think, I think the, the ramble got a bit on too many tangents right there. But a, a no, value-free analysis, which is what you do in economics, can only tell you so much out of reality. And if you view everything through that, one, you're not even going to see your own assumptions. Because like we said, so many liberal, uh, atheist or agnostic libertarians will say, oh, I have no moral assumptions, I don't know anything about morals, or maybe all morality is subjective. If you give a traditionally moral opinion, they will quickly turn against you. Uh, and I can't stand when someone who is intellectually curious doesn't have the curiosity to then question their own assumptions about things wider than just politics. It's, it, it's quite sad because politics and economics are just things of the dirt. They are just so, so materialistic and they tell you so little about reality and, and any sort of place we could possibly have in the order of things around us. There's, there's simply so much more to life and reality than politics and economics, and everyone should explore beyond those boundaries that have been set up. No, I love that too, because it reminds me of like when I had an individual, I'm not going to say her name, and you know, a predominantly pretty big right-wing libertarian group chat, like try to get a reaction on me, being like, oh, I don't believe in a god. What do you think about me? I'm like, good for you, man. Just hope you know materialism ain't going to you after you die. <laughs> like, you're not yeah. taking all this wealth and property with you to the grave, you know, to the sense, or it's coming to you in the afterlife. But a question I wanted to bounce off from that, you're bringing up philosophy. I've always had the opinion of the only thing I know is I know nothing at all. Mm. And that has definitely been helping me a lot in learning and expanding more things, or I try to humble myself to, like, read up into things where I can understand it better. 
because that's two good things I get out of that. One, I either have a different ideology I understand where I don't agree with, sharpen my own, or two, I change things up in my own ideology or world frame and view and then move forward from there. So it's always a good good, but I was asking this question considering objective moral truth and objective moral reality to some anarchist friends, and I asked them, so we see in today people derive their objective morality through many different things. If you have someone who's very pro-state, they or statist, they would subscribe their objective moral truth to, you know, this is what the state is, this is what is good. If you have someone like, let's say, a constitutionalist, they care about what's written on a piece of paper, so they'll holler up and down, holding the amendments, being like, this is truth, this is what is good. And then I thought that was interesting, so even for us Catholics, what is our moral truth? Our moral truth is Christ. We get our truth through that. Mm-hmm. And when I was trying to ask you know, my anarchist friends, I'm like, so... You are an anarchist and an atheist. Do you, one, have removed religion, so you have no moral truth from above, okay? Two, you remove the state, so you have no moral objective truth from there. That only leaves you, you know, also no constitution, none of that. That leaves you with, like, one thing left, and it's the self. And <laughs> it just kind of made me ask the question, is it really a moral truth that's purely only reflective of yourself? Because you get ten a room of ten people... You tell them, tell me what is the objective truth, and all of them would give you ten different answers. And it's like, what's the point then? Is it really objective if everyone has a different thing? But yeah. what, what's your opinion on all of that, I guess? I think that that's, that's a great way of breaking it down, and I haven't thought about it in that sense. I think it is very good to try and show people where they themselves are the end of the line. Because um, I think you can... Spe- build on that fantastically from a Christian point of saying that living for yourself is death. Um, but more so, I, I often, it is true that um, morality and truth come from God because God is truth. He is reality. He is pure existence. But I, I, I always try to not frame it as like um, morality exists because uh, if you God just wags his fingers sometimes, say, ah, you shouldn't be doing that. Morality, it, it comes from our nature as humans. What ought we be doing? If we are a human, what ought we do? That is the basic moral question. And that ultimately is, it goes back to God because our, exist, our um, nature comes from God. He is the efficient cause of our being which means ultimately, yes, he does decide what it is that we should or shouldn't do, which is, but that is a very different thing than, oh, it's immoral because God said so. It's immoral if we do something which goes against our very nature, which shows that, you're, oh, that doesn't just make God cry because like, he doesn't need us. It, 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 God is affected by immorality and sin, but it's not like we actually harm him when we sin. We harm ourselves. Um, simply because we are doing something inhuman anytime we sin we are we are going we are acting in a way contrary to our own nature and we are the primary victim of that and I, 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 that, that that helps people sometimes of course when they are quite selfish which if you're if you're not religious you are going to be naturally selfish no matter how much anyone tries to deny it a, a slight tangent is i do think um there can be atheists who believe in objective morality the the objective morality they believe in will be incorrect 
but I think the only people who properly qualify are objectivists. Um, one, because they come from an Aristotelian tradition, and even though they disregard teleology, but they do have uh, a, a sense that to be moral is to behave like a human, and they say, oh, well, okay, humans are rational. So any behavior which is uh, rational in a qualified sense is moral behavior, and that's quite true. But without God, they do have the self as the ultimate good, and they will happily and proudly say that. They're not afraid of saying that because it is logically consistent. I think, I think the only morally logically consistent atheists are objectivists. Um, now, people like that, you're not going to convince by <laughs> trying to say, oh, it's, it's um, you, that you as yourself are the arbiter of morality. They'll say, well, no, I'm not, but I am the ultimate good. And my morality should be striving towards improving myself and making myself better off. So, I don't know, don't know if that was too rambly, if you have any thoughts on that. Well, I like that. It made me think about that. So, you're speaking on objectivism, I know as too. A lot of people like Kant. Do you have any strong opinions on Kant? Uh, I, I would like to say I do. Frankly, I don't know enough about him to have too strong of an opinion. I don't want to like overstate my case. But... Um, if it, the impression I get is that um, everything follows from his epistemology, which is fundamentally fundamentally sceptical, and so I think that then sort of outlines everything that comes from him. Um, to say that we cannot we cannot perceive things as they are, only our perception of them drives a wedge between the human mind and reality, and that could only possibly create subjectivism and skepticism which i i don't really this this is the part i don't understand he wasn't the first person to come up with this sort of thing it was um descartes with his dualism first and then a lot of hume in there as well with um the obviously it's hume's guillotine i'm trying to think of what the actual name for it is but that our observation of something cannot tell us anything innate about its nature it can only tell us about something it's currently doing not that it ought to do it or it is designed to do it or anything like that it's it's part of i think a long line of skepticism which came out of the enlightenment which could only possibly end in well i'd like to say postmodernism i think postmodernism is the end of the line for subjectivism where nothing could possibly known to be true which of course <clears throat> is a self-refuting statement because you're claiming that that claim is true. And I think that just shows the absurdity of it. So it kind of goes around in circles, I think. Uh, I think Kant is one of the progenitors of where we are today. And I like saying that because so many people, if you just say the reason where we are today is um, this person, they'll know that's bad because pretty much everyone knows that where we are societally today is bad. No, I agree. And... Like you said earlier, it made me actually think a lot, saying how like today's society, this world we live in, is completely one eighty. So we shouldn't be like delusional to be like, oh, everyone before us was wrong, and we somehow got it right. Yeah. And I just think I've always thought that silly when people like the progressive, if you will, who's like saying, no, we need more progress, we need more change. And if you just ask them the question, like, why though? Like, why do we need this? So, <laughs> and it it just stumps them because it's such a simplistic question. But it stings because it's like, what's the necessary reason for us? Like, you know, we have food on our table. We're able to like keep the lights on. We're able to like have a community. All these things like that. 
why are you pushing so hard to change all this stuff? And it's to the extent where it's just like almost changed simply for the fact to change itself, where there's no needing outside of that. It's just like boredom to me is what I see. And I feel like that's why you see a lot of the birth of these new ideologies or new appeal to like communism or socialism today. It's because you have a a lot of young teenagers and adults who are living in their suburbs, bored out of their mind, not knowing what to do. And then they think they discovered the answer to the world by picking up a book by Hegel or Marx. Mm-hmm. And then they just march forward from there. And I'm like, but that's not really the whole extent. And I agree with what you said. Branch out more. Like, look at what more that fascinates you besides economics. Because you see too much this almost like Kafka trap where you'll have someone who devotes their entire life for ideology to nothing but that one theory. So I've met people who've read every single book under the sun for X ideology. But the moment you ask him, like you said earlier, morality question or something outside of their like wheelhouse, it's like they short circuit, error 404 type stuff. And I'm mm-hmm. like, you could look at more besides just limited frame and scope you're setting for yourself because no one's setting it for you. And that's something that always irritates me a bit. And I, th- I think someone who does become like a savant in that one particular area, if it is something as, let's call it lowly, as politics and economics because uh, they're so far from transcendental. They're, that kind of person, because they are an expert in that one field, is likely to be extremely close-minded. Um, I think if you... I, I, I won't claim to be an expert on anything. I have a middling knowledge of quite a, a varied amount of things. Philosophy and economics are the two that I have the highest amount of knowledge in. And if someone came to me with a philosophical question i don't understand i would have i just have sorry I, I don't understand it someone who can become a savant in one area very quickly um becomes a, a typical case of the dunning kruger effect in every other area uh I, i'd always want to grab someone who's going down that road and sort of make them <laughs> question their assumptions before they get to the end of the line of this one field and they've read every single book from mises hayek and rothbard and they think that they've figured everything out. Once they've reached that point, it's, they'll, they'll likely become very, very stubborn and not actually want to address the many, many, many assumptions which influence every other area of their life. But yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, it's very easy to stump someone like that because quite, quite frankly, we don't have Renaissance men anymore. We don't have people who are experts in multiple fields. Um, and that it's part of what fuels the replication crisis in academia at the moment. And as someone who's an expert in one field thinks they're qualified to speak on everything, which is just completely untrue. It's like you see on Twitter where people would start their senses with as a professor. Yeah. And then it's just like, what do you mean by that? You think that's going to make me agree with you more? <laughs> like, but. Um, yeah. Well, of course, COVID just how, couldn't have possibly um, epitomized that more. If, if anyone had a PhD in anything then they were allowed to tell you that you deserve to die. It was just, it was just insane. Yeah. Um, rotating around a bit. I want to ask you this for you personally, what got you started down this road, if you will, from like to start to where you are today, like mm-hmm. what inspired the birth of Anglo libertarian and lady later, you have what we are today where it's um, Sadia of Mercia. Like, what was the transition for that moving forward? And do you have any plans or ideas to reactivate your channel or maybe change the theme around, format it, put up some different videos? What's your um, thoughts on that? Well, okay, I'll take it in order. So 
Do, do you mean the whole timeline of like going from not having a political opinion to where I am now? Um, sure. If you're okay, we go down that one. I'd love yeah, to hear it. I mean, if, if you're asking a different question, then it's entirely up to you. No, that was definitely around the question. I was asking like, what got you, I guess, into politics that later right. led to you making Anglo Libertarian to where we are today with Cydia Mercia. Sure. Okay. Well, um, so I voted to leave in the Brexit vote, which was a pivotal point of uh, British political history, uh, the vote to leave the European Union. And I've, I voted to leave and I tried to articulate why. And I, I always laugh looking back on it now because I said the European Parliament is unelected and English institutions stand for freedom and democracy. <laughs> Obviously, things took a different turn, but that sort of got me. I'd never had any political opinions before 2016. I must have been around about 19 years old, I think. Somewhere around that. Hold on. No. Oh, bloody hell. Yeah, I was just able to vote, actually. Um, and I was trying to tell myself, okay, I, 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 I did be quite believe in that vote, but why? And that got me to sort of think, well, what, what, what do political parties stand for? What actually is the difference between Labour and the Conservatives in this country? Um, and obviously, if I voted Leave, I was going to side with the Conservatives. So I, 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 was I was definitely not politically active at this point, but I became a very, very mild conservative. I'd never have conversations about it. I, I wouldn't really look into anything aside from the economics because uh, that's what started my interest in this. What actually started my interest in economics was at the time of Brexit, left-wing newspapers were saying this is going to be the worst thing that's ever happened. The entire island is going to sink into the Atlantic Ocean. And then the right wing was saying this is absolutely fantastic. We are going to reinstate the empire and control the entire world because we're going to be so great and powerful thanks to all the wealth we're going to get from doing this. And I just thought, who, who's, who the hell's right? No one's going to actually tell me what the, the truth of the matter is. I kind of have to figure it out myself. And that got me interested in economics. Um, and then the person I latched onto when I got interested in that was Milton Friedman. Hearing his... Uh, economic theories before I had done any real study of economics, I was like, this guy is just saying so many fantastic things I'd never even thought about before, but wow, he's correct. Um, and that is what really started libertarianism. It was a gentle tiptoe out of normie, completely um, milk toast conservatism without even being passionate about it to economics, which led me to libertarianism. Um, very quickly from Milton Friedman, did I learn about Murray Rothbard and this, that then I had to learn the difference between the monetarist and Chicago school economics and Austrian school economics, but also, um, minarchism and anarchism. <clears throat> and it just felt like, uh, that opened a massive box of things to explore. Like there are so many labels here. What do they all mean? What do I agree with? Um, and while I was still figuring this out, I made an Instagram meme page called Anglo Libertarian, and that was the first incarnation of it. Uh, I, I, I remember some of the. I would always create my own memes and post about like one every every other day or so, and I managed to at some point I think get about fourteen thousand followers, 
which I always think it's, it, I think it's quite funny. If anyone knows me, they'll always know me from my YouTube channel, but I actually got way more traction with these Instagram meme pages. <clears throat> so I made the first one and I think this was around about the time of the 2020 U S election. The whole Facebook group was going ham on censorship and simply because I was saying both sides are bad, you shouldn't vote. The government sucks. Uh, and I wasn't even saying this in America. Like <laughs> I, I couldn't have even voted. Uh, my account got so <clears throat> like nuked. It wasn't just banned. My personal Facebook got banned and I lost like all of my. Girl, I'll just carry on from there. The, um, so yeah, it, Facebook, the, the Facebook group and now meta and everything like just completely wiped any trace of my accounts that they've ever had. And I, I can't make another Instagram page. Uh, I've managed to get around them and make a Facebook page just so I can message family. Uh, but yeah, they, they really, really hated <laughs> me. It, it felt very targeted for something that was like, I was not at that big of an account. Like, yeah, I had 15,000 followers, but that was nothing. There were pages called just like communism forever. that had like 200,000, but I, like I got banned to the point where so much, so much of my, personal footprint on the internet was just wiped forever um so i couldn't make another instagram page which was all i'd known at that point just making fucking memes and dming people and making stories about political theory and economics and so i thought what else can i put this like effort to spread the message into and thought i actually thought i've i've spotted a perfect niche in the market here what libertarians are there on youtube like none uh there was a guy called that guy t who seemed to have gone off on a, a weird route and stopped making videos years before i did even as it stands now i don't think there's anyone that's like just a libertarian political youtuber apart from liquid zulu um who i've talked to for a very long time um like he speaks very highly of you. He always oh. tells me if it wasn't for you, he wouldn't have started anything. That's, that's that's lovely. Yeah, he said that to me a couple of times, and I, I very much appreciate that. Um, um, I'm still happy to help and carry on, even if, like I say, that's not really sort of my leanings as much anymore. But that's that's a good way to plug in. If you want a libertarian YouTuber, you're basically your only hope is Liquid Zulu, and he, he, I think he mostly does debates, which would never been my thing. But a lot of people do find entertainment in those, so. At that time, yeah, I run a debate platform on oh, the side, nice. actually, with this podcast, and he's in one of my tournaments right now. Yeah. And so far, he's been stomping people. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's a bracket tournament. And it's just a row four, and he's been like stomp, 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 moving up the ladder. I'm like, Jesus, you gotta stop eight times soon. No, he he's he's, he's got the but, perfect build for a debater because he's very, very uh, intelligent and knowledgeable, but also like one of the most stubborn people I've ever met. So <laughs> he's 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 gonna do well in that arena. Um. So, yes, I noticed, okay, I'm a libertarian. I like making content on social media. What can I do now that I have no access to social media? Twitter doesn't really, like, it's, it's got no sort of presence of the sort of thing that I wanted to do. I do love t uh, Twitter slash X now and use it all the time. But at that point, it, it, was, it was not what I wanted to do at all. And so it was just YouTube channel. Um, at this point with Oh, I was also on a podcast as well. Like I, I, I forget about that called the E Militia Podcast um, with Bloody Revolutions, who's he? He's like uh, the guy that I think has got the most recognition coming out of it. 
and that was just a typical libertarian podcast i had to quit because like we would start recording at my like four in the morning and go on for like two or three hours so when i actually went to university to start studying economics which is a very very hard thing to study um i couldn't keep up with that anymore so youtube was the obvious next step i'd done podcast content so uh the, the speed i had the a good microphone set up uh understood sp- speaking in a very broad sense and i knew i loved writing because at this time i was an economic student i loved writing essays and so i just wrote down scripts of like what i would do as like a short blog post if i was going to do that and just make videos on them um without even a real video element I, I I had like a bit of a moving background, but that was it. No subtitles, no face, uh, no very, very, very little B-roll. And that's what I did for, I think about, I think it was about two years, maybe, that I made videos under Anglo-Libertarian. Um, I think I think my channel currently has about like 7,000 subscribers, so like it never like, you know, popped off. But still, I, I was the only person making this sort of, libertarian political content and there's again Zulu's the only one who comes close that's still around it's a massive gap in the market that I'm constantly trying to um, influence people to try and take advantage of like I did Um, but no and a lot of our opinion online especially the people I talk to they you were the account that walked so the rest could run if that makes sense and it's in a funny way because you are right there wasn't anyone around besides you and you were like pushing out stuff so now we got people like zulu and prax ben yeah, like prax. putting out content other guys yeah great and again those those prax ben loves his debates as well i've always been much more about just essays rather than fighting so th- i think it is still quite different the the things i the people that have come after me which is again, it's only two. It's, it's Prax Ben and Zulu. They they still do things quite different to the way I did it. Um, I, I I hope they do have more success than I do. But I just uh, yeah, it's it's not my sort of thing at all. What were you going to say? I say I'd recommend checking out a guy called MRH Legacy. Oh, yeah. He does more yeah, I know him as well. essays, to you. Yeah. And then yeah. there's Mentis Wave has mm-hmm. a similar thing as well. But definitely like all you guys is my hats off to you because. You, it's like going against a Leviathan, if you will. It's very impressive. I mean, yeah, but, it's it's nothing but an uphill battle, especially if you want to get in this sort of like debate arena. When you start looking at uh, just how unbelievably influential um, solo content creators are on the left, uh, you, of course, you have people like Vosh and Hassan and uh, Destiny, who's just more of a liberal than a socialist. Um, but like, there they are absolutely rolling in money uh and i am very grateful to the people who did like uh, donate to me when i made videos uh, and it helped me improve like audio setups and things like that but if i were to try and make a living out of making that content it would take years more work from today to be able to do it and yet these leftists are being just completely bankrolled and given genuine places of influence in society and if you want to try and make a libertarian YouTube channel, you've got no institutional support and you're trying to take a fight to them. It's it's a very, very daunting task. And I think that's kind of... I, I did get really burnt out doing it towards the end because I always felt like um, each video I make needs to help further the objective of making the world a better place in, in, like a, in a tangible way. And that is just way too heavy of a burden to have on your shoulders. 
Um, it, and it was me that put that burden there. I don't want to like make it seem as if anyone was ever expecting such uh, like massive feats other than myself. Um, but after a while, I just couldn't really do it. And then uh, I made a couple of videos about becoming Christian, which was something I'd never, I'd, I'd just never even considered before. And that has helped me to the point where um, I can actually find genuine peace um, through the sacrifice of Christ and how he is his victory over the world. Now I don't need to feel like I'm the one who needs to try and beat the world and fix it. That's been done for me. Um, and I just I was coming up to the end of university and I knew that I wasn't going to have any time to make videos because they're very time consuming things, especially if you do a script as well, like I did. I, I, the only shortcut I made was not filming myself, but that's like that doesn't take up too much time to edit that at all. Um, so, yeah, that was just kind of the end of the channel. I wanted to because I was going to stop making videos and I had a much broader mindset and things that I knew about with uh, much more philosophy, because I've always liked philosophy, but way more of it, and now religion. just felt like it's time to do a bit of a soft reboot, and so changed my name to Chad, Chayada of Mercia. Um, and at the moment, I'm just, I'm just taking it steady. I've got a sub-stack, which I do I very rarely write for. It's like every few months, I'll, I'll have the time to put something to it. But most of my creative endeavor time is currently going towards um, planning a book, so that's yeah on to the next stage um quite it's it's quite a, a long timeline really going back to 2016 um and a, a lot of different things i've done in that time Me right. memes podcast then youtube channel and uh leaving people high and dry i know there are lots of people who miss my content and that's i'm, I'm very grateful for that uh, i'm sorry that i can't do it but it's just uh it, it had its time um and now it's on to new things all good things come to an end i respect that from you nice. definitely agree with that um after this send me your sub stack stuff so mm -hmm. i can publish it when we have this episode uploaded but there's that and your video my journey to christianity and most libertarians don't understand philosophy <laughs> those two were probably my favorite videos nice. because they got me a lot more in that but well, I'm, I'm 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 really glad to hear that because like all i've ever seen from those videos is negative comments and i thought like what i'm saying is true it needs to be said it's good to say it. it's for the good of every listener that they hear this so it wasn't like a i don't look at that and go oh everyone hated me because i don't really care if people reacted negatively to that they needed to hear it and it's the truth regardless but yeah, I, I, I'm I'm glad to hear someone actually got value out of it because it just seemed to piss a lot of people off, which I expected. No, it's funny. It reminds me of Galatians four sixteen. They hated Jesus because he told them the truth. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's what it just reminds me. Uh, of. Wow. This is you sitting up here. It's like the libertarians hated him because he spoke wow. the truth. Yeah, well, I mean, I spoke <laughs> the, a lot of truth based in Jesus, so it's it should come as no surprise that it was hated. Yeah, yeah, but. Is there anything you want to add on to any other big projects in the future you have up plan or like you said earlier, is taking it slow right now? Um, getting married and starting a family. <laughs> it's way, way more. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. Um, way more time consuming and important <laughs> than making political content. Um, of course, put family first. I tell that to all the people who are on my debate stage or on my podcast great. or scheduling. 
always put your family first above all things. That's most important. That's, that's perfect. Yeah. Like, right. I, I, I would like, I'm, yeah, I'm doing the book, but like my first answer should always be in terms of like, what, what is going to actually better my life and me as a person and bring me deeper into relationship with God and the church. And that is uh, vocations and sacraments. Um, and that, so there, there's marriage, there's family, and that comes, that will come a hell of a lot before this uh, book. But that is like the only, it's not even really political. Uh, to to give a brief explanation of this, I mean, have you read Bronze Age Mindset? Oh, uh, yes, me and Bronze Age perverts are mutuals. Oh, He's an interesting fellow. Oh, yeah, that's, that, that's 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 a badge of honor a little bit. So like, um, I'm in touch with a lot of yeah big right wing accounts, nice. but I don't know why. I'm not that important, but they like me. <laughs> well, good job. So um, what I want to do is, Bronze Age mindset has captured the minds of so many disenfranchised young men, and there is a lot of uh, good and truth in that book. But ultimately, because of course it's not orientated towards. God and Jesus and Catholicism, it's missing. Not just like that's not just one inconsequential component, it's missing. It's a very foundation of reality, uh, goodness, beauty, and truth. The, 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 the encompassment of that is absent from that book. And it makes itself very clear in where you and I would disagree with the things that BAP says in that book. It all comes down to that. And so I. Uh, it's yeah. I want to sort of go. For, that's my target audience. The same target audience as Bronze Age mindset, but I want to show that the thirst for conquest, the thirst for greatness, uh, the pursuit of life and vitality, and going out there and seizing the world, and all like uh, this youthful male ambition, which is so lost in society, and so many people want. Um, the the best embodiment you'll find in that is within the Catholic Church, and anyone who would like turn their nose up at that seems to forget about the fact that the Templars existed. <laughs> like that's that that's the sort of line I want to go down. Um, I want to capture that audience of people who feel, especially young men, disenfranchised, lost, and bring them back to the church because that is where they belong. Yes, and one more thing before we um, wrap things up as. I sent it to you earlier, but I was visiting a monastery Thursday, and I remember driving two miles out deep in Georgia woods, nothing but trees. I lose signal. I'm like, all right, I'm going down there. And I pull up, and it's a giant, beautiful garden with, like, you know, a small little building where they're selling, you know, like fudge and coffee, stuff that the uh, monks make. I thought, that's nice. I look left, and then there's a statue of Holy Mother Mary. And I'm thinking to myself, where's the abbey? And then there's a sign that says, Abby, um, this way, prayer walk, and it's three miles. Whoa. So I took my rosary off, and then I started praying the rosary while walking deeper and deeper into the forest. And it's truly a very unique experience where you're just alone by yourself in your head, praying and thinking. And then right at the end of it, I finally hear the chanting, and I hear the bell. And here lays before me the most beautiful... Um, cathedral if you will i've ever seen and i'm like i did not even know this exists in the state and just trees all around it is nature combined with it and i go in these big sweeping oak doors and all i see is a glass pane of mother mary on the light coming through and then the monks like silently saying their prayers and then singing their hymns and truly 
for anyone, even if you weren't Christian, I would recommend visiting a monastery or, or feeling you truly feel the passion of Christ there and the power of the church. And like you said earlier, that's the most I see ascended role of masculinity, if you mm. will, is to give oneself, you know, a higher purpose. Yeah. And to others. So like, yeah, I, I've like, and then, you know, I'm, I appreciate you sending me that. And like I said, in return, I've never been to a monastery because we're not spoiled for choice here. Thanks to Henry VIII. Um, destroying all of them but i'm very grateful that the church i go to every week is very traditional in architecture it was built um just after it became legal again to be catholic in this country which was like i think the mid 1800s um it's always has amazing choirs uh yeah there's always lots of incense it's just it's it's when when someone thinks of catholicism that is what they think of um, and to be there every week and to sort of uh, see the examples being led by the fathers uh, with their families. And just like, I, I don't think you can get a more masculine image than a man with his family in church, like leading his family. Um, it's it's something truly incredible to behold and it's something I can't wait to do. Yes, I'm looking forward to that. I've I've been currently on a path right now where I'm trying to see God's purpose for me. If I want to give myself and my service to the church, or if I do want to have a family down the road and something I've currently been struggling with, but I'm been saying this the whole time, you know, I trust in the Lord. I know he'll guide my hand and he'll make the correct decision for me because he lays the paths for you. It's just me making a decision. Which one is it? You will, but definitely that. Um, it's kind of funny though, because the brotherhood that ran that monastery, the monks, they fall under, I believe, the Dominican friar, where they were just had these long ropes. They came and see the bottom of their feet, and then they walk with their heads slightly tilted down and their hands in prayer. And then you just see them walk around very softly, where it gives the illusion they're not even walking, like they're almost levitating around the ground. And it's them just like mumbling hymns and prayers and Aves Marias. And then I just thought that was like phenomenal watching because there's like it's almost like an entire different world. Like you just a detox, like no electronics, yeah. no interruptions, no people telling these things, but truly you felt like you're at home. Yeah. But there's, um, it's a bit of a trend at the minute for Tiki, like, uh, business types that post on LinkedIn to go to silent retreats. A lot of those will be Benedictine, uh, Catholic monasteries. They have a vow to be silent nearly all the time. Uh, I just find it quite funny how lots of people will go there and be like, wow, this is so amazing. This brings me so much inner peace. All right, back to the office on Monday. Let's not look into what these people believe at all <laughs> and why it uh, influences them to be so at peace. And uh, just, yeah. Um, but thankfully, most, most people for- who go there least- and are guided by, like, say, if you took a friend there and are able to demonstrate the true beauty of it and what it's all for, it will be a life changing experience for anyone, that's for sure. Agreed. Well, guys, um, you heard it all here. This has been Rec Room Radio, and thank you again for our guest, Sadia, for being here. Is there any closing comments you want to leave out for the audience at all? Um, I would would like to say so, but uh, I think we've covered a whole lot. I think anyone who might be curious as to what I believe now, why should I hope have the motivation to to go forward and keep learning. That's it. Yes, thank you again for being here. It's been a true pleasure and an honor. Yes, thank you um, very much. I, I always love been... getting a chance to just talk about this sort of stuff because it's great when someone actually wants to listen.
Yes, it's the best. <laughs> uh, we're a rare breed, I'll tell you that. But this has been Rec Room Radio, signing out. Thank you. <laughs>